Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Talk. I'm Consuelo Mack. Fifty years ago, on August 15, 1971, President Richard Nixon shocked the financial world by abandoning the gold standard, ending the convertibility of the dollar into gold at $35 an ounce. We are still feeling the reverberations today. Joining us is Nick Sargent, author of Global Shocks, an Investment Guide to Turbulent Markets, and also Senior Economic Advisor to Fort Washington Investment Advisors, where he was Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist for many years, having held similar positions at several other top financial firms. Nick, welcome to WealthTrack. Thank you very much, Consuelo. Pleasure to be here. Nick, give us a history lesson and explain the significance of the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement, which, you know, it created an international currency and exchange system requiring at that time, I guess, 44 countries to peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar, which in turn was pegged to the price of gold, convertible at a fixed price of $35 an ounce. What was the significance of the Bretton Woods Agreement? Uh, The significance was that uh, during um, uh, the Great Depression, and events leading up to World War II. The international monetary system was a form of a gold standard. But during the Great Depression, many countries uh, were forced off the gold standard. You also had um, many countries imposing tariffs on each other, as well as capital control. So basically, think of it as the free trading system broke down. So the goal of the Bretton Woods system, well, it had 44 participants. There were really two key players. It was the U.S. uh, government and the government of Great Britain. And the key advisor there was uh, an economist, John Maynard Keynes. So what they were trying to do was say, if we can reconstruct now a new international monetary system, what do we want? Well, we want to restore stability to the system. And that's why they wanted a form of fixed exchange rates. But the ultimate goal was that if we could stabilize exchange rates over time, then we'd see reductions in tariffs and we'd see reopenings of capital markets. And so basically the system could promote growth of of trade and the world economy. And guess what? It was a tremendously successful system. You know, we saw the resurgence of uh, West Germany, Japan, the U.S. prospered. So for about two decades, it was considered a great success. We had peace, prosperity up until the Vietnam War, but we had prosperity. Uh, So we were achieving our goals. But can we really attribute all of those, you know, laudable results to the Bretton Woods Agreement to this particular, you know, system of, uh, of fixed currency exchanges pegged to the U.S. dollar, which in turn was pegged to gold? Um, I, I don't want to say that there would not have been post-war reconstruction, of course. Right. But what I am saying is that, um, you know, the pre-World War II system was chaos. And so what the goal was is, can we restore stability But at the same time, you know, the fathers of the Bretton Woods system, they envisioned there are going to be times where you're going to have to allow exchange rates to adjust. So they called it the adjustable peg. You could change your exchange rates under certain conditions. Within a very narrow range, right? uh, Absolutely. The other thing I forgot to mention, Consuelo, was in the 1930s, we had competitive depreciations. In other words, 
countries were um, hurting and they say, well, how can we boost our exports? Well, let's devalue our currency relative to somebody else. Well, they, so one country would do it and then the next country would do it. It, it was that competitive depreciation that they definitely wanted to rule that out in the in the new order. Right, the race to the bottom. Exactly. So Nick, if the Bretton Woods system was working so well, why did people start to question it? There were really two reasons. Uh, the first was that if you're going to back your currency, the dollar, with gold, then obviously uh, you need a large supply of gold. That is the, uh, the federal government and the Federal Reserve. And um, in the 1960s, the U.S. was by far the largest holder of gold. However, uh, what we experienced was outflows of capital from the United States, some because the, the, the world economy was becoming global and businesses were going abroad. What was then happening is that people were observing that um, the, the gold holdings in the United States were declining steadily. And some people were saying, well, wait a minute, can this system go on if this happens indefinitely? So that was issue number one. So but people I'd, were actually converting their dollars into gold and pulling gold out yes, of the U.S.? Yes, yes, And there was both, some of it might be uh, foreign central banks. Maybe they had large holdings of dollars. Let's convert back to gold. Remember, uh, you could um, buy gold on the open market. And so you could have speculators say, well, I'm not sure if this system is going to hold together. So you had some speculation. The second thing was that... Um, in the second half of the 60s, with the Vietnam War and the social programs of the Johnson administration, what we started to see was increases in, in U.S. inflation. We used to have inflation 1% to 2%, and it starts to rise. And that coincides with the beginnings of a deterioration in the U.S. trade balance. And uh, essentially what U.S. policymakers worried was, could U.S. businesses compete with Germany, Japan, and others, you know, under these circumstances. So trade was the second consideration. So the questioning of, of this uh, regimen, which had basically started uh, in 1944, really was centered in the U.S.? Uh, questioning yes. its, its viability, was it also being questioned by the other 44 countries that had signed on to it in 1944? I would say that... Um, the biggest criticisms were of the United States were coming out of Europe. The French uh -huh. loved to um, you know, say that the United States wasn't subject to the same constraints that other countries were. In other words, if other countries started losing their reserves, uh, they would have to tighten their belt, uh, monetary policy, raise interest rates. And they um, believed that the Federal Reserve was not acting vigorously enough. So some of it was coming from the U.S., but there was there was a lot of bickering going on between U.S. officials and um, their counterparts in Europe. And then there was concern that Japan was taking advantage of the system. Given the strains that were, had become evident, why was President Nixon's 1971 decision to abandon the gold standard and end the dollar's convertibility into gold such a shock? Um, I think because uh, for so long, the U.S. government was saying, we'll never devalue our currencies. You have to remember, the U.S. never had a devaluation of its currency in, uh, in its history. And um, so the shock was that 
I think that it was a unilateral decision. They had a meeting in Camp David for three days with the policymakers. And all of a sudden they come out and make a de facto announcement. And uh, so policymakers outside the United States are caught completely off guard, as are many other people, because, wait a minute, this means I can't exchange dollars for gold anymore. They close the gold window. I'm going to ask you to to go back and just answer uh, that question so that I understand it. Why did Nixon go off the gold standard and and why did they act unilaterally when it was just the linchpin of the entire, you know, international currency exchange system? I believe that the principal reason was that the US thought that uh, the system had become a burden, meaning that here was the U.S., it was losing its competitiveness. You know, if it was any other exchange rate system and you'd say, well, uh, what can you do? Well, you could devalue your currency. But because the U.S. dollar was the principal reserve currency for the system, you could not just go out and announce a dollar devaluation. So um, I think it was really that was the crux of it. And what it really did was then say, it's time now we sit down with our trading partners and uh, figure out what the new parities would be for the system going forward. And that basically took place in December of 1971, so four months later. And basically, the world that was uh, in existence in 1944 after World War II, when the U.S., came out of that war, clearly the world's superpower, both uh, you know, militarily and economically, uh, that it, it had changed by the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, other countries who that had been devastated during World War II were on their feet, were flourishing. So the world had really changed where we could no longer be the, the bank where you came and converted our currency into gold. Was it just an unrealistic and unsustainable system, given how the other economies had uh, come back uh, and were really, you know, standing on their own? Yes, uh, that's the argument. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Garten, uh, the emeritus dean of Yale, has just published a book on um, the Camp David uh, agreement. And he would exactly agree with what you're saying. He's saying that the, the significance was that the U.S. in effect is acknowledging for the first time it was preeminent post-World War II. And it's in effect saying, wait a minute, we're in uh, a new world where the good news is that our former adversaries are now doing extraordinarily well. But um, from now on, we've got to make sure that we have a system that isn't going to disadvantage the United States is the way they viewed it. And what would the naysayers be be saying? The naysayers are basically saying, you've described the symptom of the problem, but not the cause of the problem. What I mean by that is, why did we lose competitiveness? Well, we lost competitiveness because the U.S. went from being low inflation, 1% to 2%, to high inflation. By uh, 1970, it was 5% inflation. And on its way, by the way, to double digits in the 1970s. And so the naysayers would say that the real cause of the trade deficit and the tensions 
was that the reserve center, the U.S., became unstable and it didn't fix policies. What should it have done? The argument is the Fed should have raised interest rates and tightened monetary policy. Why didn't it? Mainly because they were under pressure. Richard Nixon was running for re-election in 1972 and talked to his friend, um, Arthur Burns, chairman of the Fed, and said, Arthur, do not raise interest rates. And basically, Burns acquiesced, did not tighten monetary policy. What did they do? They put on wage price controls, and those don't work. Again, those are stopgap measures. You're not dealing with the fundamental cause of the problem, which was that monetary policy had become far too accommodative. So how has it worked out since then, Nick? Yeah. What a question to ask, uh, in, you know, an international yeah. economist. But, you know, 50 years later, right. uh, how has the uh, international monetary system evolved? First, what I would say is the 1970s were one of the most turbulent periods in international financial history. I mean, it wasn't just the U.S. that had um, double-digit inflation. It was um, – we had the oil shocks – uh, so we had a tremendous period of um, price instability. The currency gyrations were far greater than the proponents of flexible exchange rates, such as Milton Friedman, ever envisioned. Um, so it was pretty chaotic. But I would say that the turn was really in the 1980s when Paul Volcker and the Fed takes over and says, we got to end this. And so he does type monetary policy. In the UK, it was Margaret Thatcher. But pretty soon, by um, the second half of the 1980s into the 1990s, the central banks reaffirmed their commitment to keep inflation low. And so the bottom line is the main source of currency instability, which is high and variable inflation rates, that's pretty much dissipated by 1990. But to answer, though, how the system evolved, it's actually amazing the Europeans were always the ones who wanted a stable currency. And what are they going to do? Well, you know, basically, they created the euro and the European monetary system. So if you like, they have a fixed exchange rate system with a single currency. It fluctuates versus the dollar, which is fine, because they want their stability amongst themselves, and they can live with dollar fluctuations. The Japanese and now the Chinese uh, they have dirty floats, meaning they all allow their currencies to move, but they intervene in the currency market to limit the amount of currency fluctuation. But both of those countries practice capital controls. They don't allow free movement in and out of their countries as the U.S. does. So my answer is we have a hybrid system. Is it perfect? No, but it's it's functioning. It, it, we don't have the problem of inflation and we don't have the big arguments that we went through in the 70s and the 80s uh, today. Let's reassess what you just said. We don't have a big problem with inflation. If inflation is key to uh, you know, monetary stability and currency exchange rate stability, then could we not be developing a big problem? And that is one of the reasons why I believe there are lessons from Bretton Woods. We've been two decades with very low inflation. And in fact, we have central banks more worried about deflation or falling prices. That's why we have negative interest rates. So of course, we all know that um, 
in COVID, we had huge monetary stimulus with returning to zero interest rates, massive purchases of government debt to keep interest rates at or near zero. And then on the fiscal front, um, we've had the biggest uh, government spending programs in history, both to tackle COVID and now potentially under the Biden administration to take on other initiatives. So I think rightly, people are asking the question, could there be a return to higher inflation? And, you know, it's a debate. The Fed says, don't you worry, don't we got things under control. This is just a temporary spike because there's supply shortages still linked to COVID. But, you know, time will tell. Um, my own take is that the risk is that inflation, which I would say now is running more 3 to 4% instead of um, 2-ish, uh, the risk is that that doesn't come down next year or possibly the following year. So we could have higher inflation. The difference, though, is I don't think the Fed's going to make the same mistakes they made in the 70s that produced double digit. That was untenable. So I do think there's a risk of higher inflation, but I don't see a return to uh, the bad days of the 1970s. But. Nick, you just told me about Arthur Burns, basically, yes. who was the Fed chairman under Nixon, yes. and he intentionally did not tighten, raise interest rates, right. did not tighten monetary conditions to prevent a recession. And here we have tremendous amount of pressure being put on this Fed as well, is to let the economy recover from covid and let's live with higher inflation for a while. So isn't the Fed likely uh, to kind of bend over backwards? I mean, not to tighten, not to raise interest rates, you know, not to threaten a recession? Um, I certainly think that's a valid concern. It's not as blatant as, um, you know, it was then. But, you know, the other thing that as I was thinking through the um, Burns uh, period, the, the interesting thing, when uh, when inflation did rear its ugly head, guess what uh, Burns did? He defined the problem away. He was the Fed chairman who came up with the concept of, oh, well, we can't, you know, you, what, what was the biggest price increases in the 70s? Uh, it was food and energy. And so he basically said, well, those are volatile. Those are outside of our control. Let's exclude them. Okay. And, uh, right and then, from the inflation measures, yes, which is kind of crazy. Yes, I actually <laughs> talked to staff members of his, and they said, oh, Nick, it didn't even stop there. Any item that went up more than uh, average, that was an exception. So he defined the problem away. And I have to say, uh, when I do listen to the Fed's argument today, well, whatever goes up, you know, okay, lumber went up a lot, but it did come down. But then you got used car prices, semiconductor prices, I go to the grocery store and I'm shocked at what I'm paying. So yes. um, what you're alluding to is, are there some similarities? And I think there are. The risk is the Fed is behind the curve, right? Therefore, we can see more volatility. But I'm just saying that I wouldn't put it on the scale of what went, went on in the 70s. But there is a risk of inflation. The rules are being rewritten uh, as we speak by both the Fed. The monetary rules are being rewritten and, uh, and by the federal government uh, with these fiscal programs that are going to create, you know, I mean, just 
far beyond record deficits. I mean, we're we're up right. in you know World War II category as far as debt to GDP. Could we be at another one of those major turning points where we're going to need an, another rewrite of the major understandings with um, our exchange rate system, possibly, or just the way the world operates in global finance? I think that certainly is a possibility. The way I put it, uh, Consuelo, is that when I grew up and, and studied economics, what did you what was the main takeaway from not just the U.S. experience, the experience of many countries? When do you get uh, instability in financial markets? And uh, it's the combination of large budget deficits and then the Fed basically monetizing those deficits. And let's face it. I mean, this is what's been going on, not just in the last four years, but if you go back to the global financial crisis. So I I think what's happened, uh, though, is the global financial crisis. I think people are drawing the wrong lesson. They're saying, well, look, we we had uh, the stimulus um, uh, and it didn't produce inflation. And I think, though, that my response, uh, Consuelo, is yes, but the circumstances today are different. Then when the Fed injected reserves into the banking system, then um, the, the, that money didn't get put to use, whereas today we are seeing a major increase in money supply. And then the second point is the magnitude of the budget deficits today are just unprecedented. So, you know, I think people will then say, well, yeah, but it's, it's not a problem because interest rates are so low. Well, guess what? At some point, interest rates will rise, and that's when you're going to see the cost of the programs that we've been doing. You don't see it when interest rates are low. And that's my other point is, let's say you didn't have inflation. My critique is these policies produce asset bubbles, bubbles in the stock market, bubbles in the housing market, you know. uh, In In the the bond market. Yes. And I think that the risk today is not immediately, but um, give me another year or so. Uh, the risk is that uh, certainly the stock market is right, certainly the bond market. And depending if housing prices continue doing what they're doing, I mean, could you have a triple whammy? So that's a risk that, that we're, we're living with. Um, you know, and, and that to me is the risk of the financial system today. Was the world that we're in today, was the foundation laid when Nixon uh, went off the gold standard? Here's what my response would be. If we hadn't learned the mistake by the 1980s about letting inflation swing out of control, if you didn't have a Paul Volcker, if you didn't have a Margaret Thatcher I would say then you can make the direct link to Nixon. So you, you have um, you know, 30 years of falling or low inflation. So, you know, hey, we, we figured out it was important to keep inflation under control. And then central banks are all patting themselves on the back. Um, Bernanke's writing articles on the great moderation. But you know, they congratulated themselves too early. They never asked, why all of a sudden are we seeing all these asset bubbles in Japan, in Asia, uh, in the tech bubble, in the housing bubble? And I think that the, uh, the flip coin is, 
you don't have asset bubbles in high inflation. Why? Because for, uh, interest rates are high. And so that means that financial assets don't do well. You get asset bubbles when inflation is low and the central bank says, hey, we did our job, but they allow too much credit to be expended. And that sets the stage for excessive credit creation and debt problems. We can't blame the ills uh, today on Nixon because we did get inflation under control. We're talking to Nick Sargent, author of Global Shocks, an Investment Guide to Turbulent Markets. Nick, a couple of more questions. One is, uh, if there's one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that we should all own some of in an environment where we are seeing inflation pick up, what would it be? Historically, uh, the story would be gold, or the alternative would be real estate. Uh, and they're, they're viewed as the inflation hedges. Uh, people thought that um, stocks were a good inflation hedge. And then uh, the problem was in the 1970s, uh, if you looked at the stock market, uh, it went up. But then if you said, well, let me take the returns on the stocks and then subtract out the inflation, uh, guess what? Uh, you know, it was an illusion. So, you know, normally it's gold or um, real estate. You might also say commodities. 50 years after uh, President Nixon abandoned the gold standard, do we need a, a new system to uh, to replace it? And it, it could it be that digital currencies are going to be part of that system? Mm -hmm. uh, so now you're really getting to, I think, the question, can the dollar still stay as the world's key reserve currency and the premier asset? And, I, and I've said, Consuelo, for 50 years, I've been asked that question. And my answer uh, except for the 70s, once inflation came under control, I said, yes, it will remain the key currency because there's no alternative. I mean, as long as we keep inflation under control, I mean, look at the euro. It's got a lot of issues. It's it's probably here to stay, but uh, it's not out of the woods completely. China, uh, hey, you want to go into China? Hey, do you want to get your money out of China? You can't. And similarly, I think with uh, Japan to a lesser extent. So really, there is no other country that says we'll accept the burden of letting money come freely into our country and freely out. So that's why there's not an alternative. So you raise digital currencies. And I've looked into this issue, did paper on Bitcoin, and I'm not uh, an expert. But I would say the more I looked into it, I say... Uh, these digital, privately issued digital currencies are vehicles to speculate. There are people that make money in them. There are people that lose money in them. But there is no backing for the digital currencies that exists under um, you know, any of the current reserve currencies. And it's, you don't have government backing. That's point one. Point two is that in response to this, uh, the Chinese and even the U.S. and others are looking, the central banks, should they be issuing digital currencies? And the reason is that they want to make sure that policymakers have control of the system and the like. So I do not see privately issued digital currencies replacing the dollar in my lifetime. I don't know how many more years I have. 
So that's one thing I don't worry about is the dollar is going to lose its its reserve currency status. So what are you most worried about, Nick? Um, I, it's what you, you said. We, we've rewritten the rules of the game on monetary and fiscal policy. So far, we haven't paid a price for it. But I think what it is, um, remember when they started unorthodox monetary policies after the global financial crisis of 2008, and uh, the central banks were saying, well, we're going to wean ourselves off uh, and the like. Well, they tried. And every single time they got chicken, they get cold feet. And now here we have an economy. What more evidence do they want of how much it's recouped? And they're keeping interest rates at emergency levels. They're buying mortgage-backed securities when the housing market is soaring. And I go, this is potentially a great mistake. So, you know, we've gotten away with it so far, but I I don't think that uh, you can keep getting away with it um, much longer. Nick Sargent, so great to have you on WealthTrack, and thank you for marking this 50th anniversary of uh, President Nixon's decision to uh, abandon the gold standard. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure as always. And we want to thank you, our audience, for listening and remind you to visit our website at wealthtruck.com for other interviews with financial thought leaders and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.